0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. I study racial health inequities, and it's become really clear through my research and the research of others, that place is an important factor in these health inequities. Um, But not just place alone, place actually has its own history. So I've been developing these ideas that history and the history of place affects actually the way place is today, and that this in turn then affects health and health inequities. So one way that I've been doing that is through a current uh, project that I have that's funded through the National Institutes of Health, where I examine the role of Racial segregation, including history of segregation and contemporary segregation, and how that then results in inequities, racial inequities in industrial pollution and other social features of the environment. And then how that actually plays out in the molecules in the body and then how that in turn then results in inequalities in aging, inequalities in chronic disease, inequalities in life expectancy. Another way that I link history to contemporary um, exposures, so the, the current environment, is through this idea uh, that that violence begets violence, and but it doesn't always have to be the same kind of violence or the same notions of violence. So I'm working with colleagues at the um, WashU in St. Louis, some historical sociologists, and they are we're linking histories of racial violence, including lynching and the, uh, the violence linked to Jim Crow and other forms of social control, of racial control to contemporary environmental racism. And that's what I call the this, this slow violence. So it doesn't necessarily kill people immediately, but it is this slow violence that, that wears away at people's health over time. Um, and it is passed on through generations through their bodies, through the molecular changes in their bodies. And so that's one thing that I'm trying to show that our environmental racism our, our, or what is the unequal distribution of our pollution, industrial pollution, our, um, our pollution linked to the agricultural industry is not, it doesn't pop out of nowhere, that it actually is linked to our history, of violence and our our violence and control of black and brown Americans. These ideas that that we have made a, a pact as a society that there are disposable populations and we have these populations so that we can dump our garbage so that the rest of us can live in a clean society. And I want to test the idea that if we had no such disposable populations then perhaps we would have more political will to engage in activities that would slow climate change. And so these projects are, for example, I will look at different cities over time um, that have very different different racial compositions, so very different uh, compositions of disposable communities. And what do they do? Do they then engage more in, in policies and practices that slow climate change or they don't leave the carbon footprint or um, contribute to climate change as much as societies, as much as cities that have these large disposable populations. And I think that this is translatable to a global level as well because the United States is the largest per capita producer of, of greenhouse gases and it's second in tonnage only to China, which is a much larger population. Yet, um, I think that is because we see that we have these disposable populations and then the rest of us can live in a very cleansed environment that we don't have any political will to actually change, to change our behaviors. So I think that what ties these projects together and what ties a lot of my research is that I don't think that racial inequities in health is driven by necessarily by personal dislike, even personal, not only just personal dislike between people, but not just personal dislike of entire groups of people. But I think that what we have is this self-sustaining system that disadvantages groups of people, um, and, and that it continues whether whether we realize it or not, or whether we actually want to do harm, whether we intend to do harm to other groups of people. And, um, and so then I think that it is, what I'm hoping to show is that, that even though it seems like we have changed, our society has changed and we've worked toward racial progress, racial equity, what I'm hoping to show, or what I want to see through these through these um, these linkages through history, is that we actually have not changed. It seems like we have changed because we continue to change the way we talk about racial inequities, and we continue to um, to change the form that our racial control takes. That it was slavery, and then it was um, Jim Crow and lynching, and then now you know I think that it is through our criminal justice system, but also through our environmental justice, who we dump on, that now that is the form of our racial control and our violence. And so I kind of, I want to show that in, that there, there are reasons why we have no political will, why we have no movement toward equity, toward no real sustained movement toward equity. It is because this is the way we have always been. So we are looking at it nationally, but the thing is, is that we are looking very purposefully at different parts of the country because we are looking at history, so we have to understand migration patterns and how the history of our country developed, how the history of cities in different parts of the country developed through the Great Migration and the influx of Black families to Northern and Western cities, and how that then changed um, how cities then decided where they would dump, where they would place polluters. So we are looking nationally, but it is with a very critical eye to history, to understanding history and understanding place. So one reason that I think that it is critical that we fund this kind of research is that we have to show, we have to know and understand that racial inequities in health, racial inequities in education, and all of these social um, and political and health spheres is more than personal dislike. And I would argue that it is more than implicit bias. It is about a system that we have created centuries ago that privileges one group over many others. And so we can see this play out in immigration. It's not, it's just, I study Black Americans and um, the power differential between Black and white Americans. But we can see this play out with regard to many other groups, with regard to immigration and other forms of racial control. So I think that that's one thing, because when we only focus on personal dislike or we only focus on intent, like someone intended to do harm to this group, then um, we actually won't move toward equity. Instead, we need to talk about changing entire systems and changing entire institutions. And we have to work explicitly to, um, to work against history the history that has created the way these institutions operate. So that's one reason that I think is really important is that we have to move beyond individual and interpersonal because I don't think that that's what it's about. Um, The other reason that I think that we need to study this and bring in history and philosophy, especially the history, the scholarship of Black scholars when studying Black, um, when studying the health of Black Americans, is that we have to understand that the racial health inequities that we see now, it is nothing new. And the reason why, perhaps one reason why we have no will or no um, understanding to change it is because we don't understand our history. And so if we bring in history, I think that it completely changes the way we can look at health now, that, the, that these health inequalities and the fact that they have been so persistent is not new. It is actually simply a reflection of, of centuries. So I think that those are two main reasons why we need to study place and we need to study history and structure. My research, I understand, is the long game. I will not see change in my lifetime. I may not you know my daughter may not even see change in her lifetime we're in it for the long haul to make these important major structural changes but there are things that i want that i knew that i could do that i wanted to do now where i could thought that i could see change at least to help keep me motivated for selfish reasons but also um to use my privilege to help benefit others and that was within our own university so what i had come to understand is that there were many brilliant Black scholars here, students, who were really struggling um, to, to fully express their brilliance um, because they were studying racism, they had new ideas, really new ideas, new takes on well-worn race, uh, research tropes. And, but they were not getting traction with the, in their departments and they were being discouraged from, from embarking on the study that they wanted to embark on. So there was one, one doctoral student in particular in the, B, in the B school and in psychology. So she studies organizational psych and she was about to drop out of the program. She was in the PhD program and she was gonna drop out and she just happened to enroll in a study that I was doing um, here at ISR, a qualitative study. And um, we started talking afterwards about the ideas behind what I was studying and um, she, she started to talk about her own research and that she was not getting the mentorship that she wanted and she knew of a lot of people who were actually having the same experience and who she was afraid also that, that others would not make it through because she was not going to make it through. So we started on our own, um, just with a really small group, no funding. I would just we would just get together and talk through racial t- talk through ideas about their research, and I would help give them ideas about how to hone their research project, data ideas. And then she found she's so entrepreneurial. She's not here anymore uh, right now. but um, she found that Rackham would fund these interdisciplinary working groups. And so we wrote a proposal together to fund. This Racism Lab, it's an interdisciplinary work group to really help promote the scholarship and the career progression of scholars who study racism from a critical lens. And it just happens to be that nearly all of the scholars who do this work are scholars of color. And so with this funding, we were able to formalize this group. What Racism Lab is, is it's a space for scholars who study racism through a critical lens, um, to hone their ideas, to help them get through the dissertation process, and we also have postdocs. It helps them get through this transition period between um, between the doctoral work and then professional life. And so we work together. It's an interdisciplinary group, and we work together. People take turns presenting, and we. Uh, we actually then um, critique the work and help people, help the scholars flesh out their work so that it's ready for their dissertation committees. It's ready so that they can, it helps them move through their own mental blocks. Um, But it really does build on their own brilliance so they can express it. In addition to our weekly, so they can present their work to get it um, critically evaluated and fully fleshed out. Then we also have weekly writing sessions to get in the habit of writing. And we have, so there's accountability for the writing too. We also um, have an annual symposium uh, sponsored by, partially sponsored by Rackham, but mostly sponsored by the Survey Research Center, um, where the theme is always around the interdisciplinary study of race and racism. They really had no other place to talk through their ideas. They knew what they wanted to do, and it was based on their own personal experiences, um, what they wanted to do, but they were discouraged um, from taking this path and maybe taking the path of lesser resistance. So something that's more well-worn, a path more well-worn, but um, I think that they have come to say that because Racism Lab was open and took it from a starting point of this is what you're going to do now let's build it up rather than let's take the easy way or let's break it down and you take a different way so we took their brilliance and then and then allowed them to build that and i think that that is what makes racism lab very special we just and so in addition to in addition to the symposium we also provide opportunities for publication. So they do we I one thing that I really wanted to do is to provide real concrete ways for them to add to their CV. Because there are other places on campus where they can go for social support, but I really wanted to be able to provide opportunities for material support so that they can get peer-reviewed publications on their CV, they can have presentations on their CV as they go out into the job market. One thing that's really important is that the space is intentionally small. We intentionally have about 20 people any given year um, because it has to be a space where there is deep mutual trust, where people can, where students who are who are talking about their ideas that are very personal to them for the first time, where they can actually speak these ideas without fear and, and know that everybody in the audience is giving them feedback In their own best interest. They're they're giving their feedback because everybody is in their corner and they just want to see the research better. So it's always been word of mouth, but with this, the development of this landscapes of racial dispossession and control, it has become very important to me that we actually communicate back to the community the drivers of these health inequities, you know, really showing that this is history and place and this is not about interpersonal um, dislike or even dislike of an entire group of people. It is about our history as Americans and it is about place and how we have relegated some people to, um, to very unhealthy places and other people to very clean, healthy places. So one of the priorities that I have for the projects that I've described is to communicate that back to the public. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.